Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 19th of March. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? Well, it's where the great Stan Laurel made his theatre debut in what is now the oldest surviving musical in the world. Yes, it's Glasgow! <laughs> For your information, Stan Laurel debuted at the Panopticon Theatre Glasgow in 1906 in what started out as the Britannia musical in the late 1850s. But our venue today is the Griffin Bar, which is a B-listed building dating back to 1903. Originally known as the King's Arms, it was built at the same time as the King's Theatre, which stands opposite the pub. Ian Banks gives it a mention in its novel Espadare Street, and scenes from the 2013 movie Sunshine on Leith were filmed here. And we have an audience with us in the Griffin this afternoon. We're performing this show as part of the Glasgow International Comedy Festival, now in its 20th year. The festival features over 380 different shows over the space of two and a half weeks and sells out many of them. And this show is no exception to the fact that many are not sold out. <laughs> so who is on today's panel, whose friends and family are busy doing something else? Please welcome Ian Pringle, Amanda Hersey and Brian Ghosh. All today's panellists are stand-up comedians, but with an interest in history. So Ian, first, you run and host gigs all over Glasgow. You have a uh, Masters in Psychology and work for a mental health charity in West Lothian. Do you have anything to plug? Uh, no, my show was yesterday. Um, I do have gigs in Glasgow every month though, so follow me on Instagram or Facebook or so just talk to me. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Amanda, you are a former Glasgow champion at the 100 metre sprint. Recording an impressive... <laughs> Recording an impressive time of 12.44 seconds, which is amazing. And you're also a Guinness World Record runner-up for eating 22 Jaffa cakes in 60 seconds. Uh, so the obvious question is, which did you do first? <laughs> the Jaffa cakes came second, which leaded to my decline. <laughs> the running was many moons ago. Uh, but yeah, my name's Amanda, you can follow me on social media if you want. Um, I'm doing a comedy show on Saturday, 25th, um, at Blackfriars at 7 o'clock. Um, so I would love to see you there. Um, Brian, our third panellist, you were in the Radio 4 Comedy Awards in 2019, but by day you are a software developer based in Edinburgh. Uh, yep, that's true. Um, I just do comedy to uh, pay the bills to fund my real passion of 9 to 5 software development. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would say you can follow me on the social media and everything, but I uh, <coughs> spend too much of my life with computers <laughs> as part of my day job, so I don't do any of that. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, have a chat, like, uh, like you suggested. <laughs> old-fashioned, old-fashioned, yeah. So uh, straight over to you, Ian, for your On This Day piece. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so on this day, in 1644, over 200 members of the Peking imperial family and court committed suicide in loyalty to the emperor. Now, as extreme as that sounds, in this day and age, the mass suicides in China were out of like respect and loyalty, were pretty much expected at the time, apart from the course. 
Um, they mass suicide is usually a bad thing. <laughs> but a royal family, an entire royal family, offering themselves at once. I don't know, I think we should bring that back. <laughs> Save us a few quid. I mean, one group of people, if they were all to kill themselves in one day, I would be like, okay with it. <laughs> be that our royal family. <laughs> it's a dream come true. <laughs> Now, since we're in Glasgow, um, another group that I'd be happy for 200 of them to kill themselves at once be Catholic priests. <laughs> Just for a bit of balance there. I don't think all Catholic priests should kill themselves, but if 200 of them kill themselves at once, we'd be like, ah, probably feeling guilty about something there. It should be, should be something that's happening. I don't know if that's worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> to be exact, the figure of those who committed suicide on this day is closer to 900 people. And that's excluding the thousands of eunuchs who died fighting and defending the, 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 defending the palace from rebels. Uh, eunuchs, by the way, are men who have been castrated, typically before puberty, in the beliefs that they might perform specific social functions and not be tempted to seize power. Uh, there would probably be less of an issue committing suicide for them than the royal family, I don't know. It's a bit, a bit dark for one PM. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote it at like, 3am, um, but I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so during, during the 17th century, um, a small ice age happened, which caused widespread drought, famine and uh, farmer uprisings throughout China. And this accelerated the fall of the Ming Dynasty during Chong Zheng's reign. Um, in early, early 1644, the situation of uprisings had become very dire and unfavourable to Chong, Chong Zheng. Uh, Li Zhengcheng, a popular and important uprising, prepared to take the Ming capital of Beijing, um, which was, I think, at the time called Peking. Or, um, rather than facing capture, humiliation, and probable execution, Chong Zheng um, arranged for a feast and gathered all members of his imperial household except his sons. He cried out, Why must you be born into my family? And killed them with his sword. <laughs> sick. <laughs> The only person who survived was his second daughter, a 126-year-old princess, Chang Ping, who severed her arm whilst trying to block the blow of the sword. That's some scrap for a woman that age. <laughs> uh, Chong Zheng then fled to Jinshang Park uh, behind the palace and committed suicide by hanging himself from the guilty Chinese scholar tree, leaving behind a death note on his robe. I am insufficient in virtues and, con and weak in conducts, hence the heavenly punishment, and the ministers also failed me. Having no dignity to face my ancestors, I would undress my crown and cover my face with hair, mutilate my body as you wish, but do not harm a single civilian. Wanted to keep the mutilation and violence for himself and his family. <laughs> do you reckon after this, as a society, they were like, we need to start talking about mental health? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right. uh, so it's the first of my own on this day segue pieces, so I'm going to be asking questions to the panel. My first piece is about the Standard Time Act of 1918, also known as the Calder Act, which was the first United States federal law implementing standard time and daylight saving time in the United States. It defined five time zones for the US, 
and authorised the Interstate Commerce Commission to define the limits of each time zone. So first question to the panel, how many time zones does the US cover now? I have no idea. <laughs> Is it so we've got three, five and no idea. Uh, there are actually nine time zones by law in the USA and its dependencies, so cheating a bit there. However, adding the time zones of two uninhabited US territories, Howland Island and Baker Island, brings the total count to 11 time zones. So it's more like a pub quiz. Uh, <laughs> what are the four time zones in the contiguous US? So in other words, the, the bits that join together in mainland US. Anyone know? I mean, at this point, I'm feeling this is a classic case of misbooking. There are other topics available. So. <laughs> so what are the four time zones in the contiguous US? Pacific time, Eastern time, Standard time, Central. Yay! So I've uh, got, uh, well, did you say this? Uh, Eastern time, Central time, Mountain time, and Pacific, and Pacific time. I think I said Standard, yeah. that's not one of them. Yeah, yeah. So Section 264 of the 1918 Act mistakenly placed most of the state of Idaho in the Central time zone. And this was amended by Congress to Mountain time in 2007. But that's what they were observing anyway prior to that correction. Mountain time sounds fun, doesn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. Uh, given that Canada sits on top of the US, are the same time zones observed in Canada? That's a yes or no. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go yes. No, I doubt it, because Canada was British, and I feel like they'd want to be slightly different just to be next. Uh, I'm afraid the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Canada has six time zones. There's Eastern, Central, Mountain, and Pacific are all the same as the US ones. But then Canada also has Atlantic time further to the east. <coughs> and then it also has Newfoundland standards further to the east again for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, questions to the panel. What makes Newfoundland standard time different to all the others in the Americas? It applies to Newfoundland. <laughs> it does, yes. Technically true. Yeah. Uh, is it in the Antarctic? Like, in the Antarctic? Ar not the Antarctic, no, the Arctic. Um, <coughs> well, uh, okay, it's a bit of a trick question. It's only half an hour ahead of the other adjacent time zones. And that's, that's uh, unique to all the Americas. So it keeps time by subtracting three and a half hours from universal standard time, so UTC, it gets very complicated, this, or two and a half hours during daylight saving time. So when it's four o'clock in Winnipeg and five o'clock in Ottawa, it's actually 6.30 in Newfoundland. In 1963, the Newfoundland government attempted to move the province to Atlantic time in tandem with the rest of Atlantic Canada, but withdrew in the face of stiff public opposition. And because the lone independent TV station in the province often airs programmes before the rest of North America, it promotes them as world television premieres. <laughs> uh, so, over to you, Amanda, now to regale, you with, <laughs> regale us with your historical knowledge. Thank you. Yeah, I studied history at a university just to, <laughs> <laughs> just to, to let you know, but that was 15 years ago, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so on this day, it's actually apparently the official uh, read to me day, hence the wee notepad, so uh, on this day, March 19th, marks National Let's Laugh Day, and bizarrely Poultry Day, <laughs> suppose we finally know why the chicken crossed the road. <laughs> Of course, today is Mother's Day. Give me a cheer for all the mammies. Woo! <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> no, I'm not my mum. I'm on myself. I'm single as fuck. 
<laughs> you know what, that's right, if I was ever pregnant, I'd be given birthday parties. <laughs> but there's lots of famous birthdays today, which makes them the star sign Pisces. So traditionally, they're emotionally stable, emotionally generous. Uh, so the birthdays are Glenn Close, Bruce Willis, and Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> he celebrates being 71. So famous Weinstein films are including Scream, Scary Movie, and Sin City because he likes to employ method actors. <laughs> so, you know, being a female comic, it can be tough, uh, because it is a well-documented fact that there is still a lot of sexual predators in show business. So I really need to keep myself sober, <laughs> so that I can drive them home. <laughs> Who wants to live tonight, lads? <laughs> but speaking of creeps, uh, on this day, Prince Andrew announced his separation to wife Fergie, so that he could really focus on his true passions going to Pizza Express <laughs> and humping teenagers. Getting fucked by people in power leads us to the next segment of government. Uh, on this day, the House of Commons in 1649 abolished the House of Lords, stating that they were useless and dangerous to the people. Don't worry, 12 years later they were reinstated and continue to be useless and dangerous. <laughs> the House of Lords, the most famous Lord is the Apprentice Guy, Lord Sugar. So crushing entrepreneurs' dreams every year by grooming them a business deal. On this day in 1994, the world's largest omelette was cooked up in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> the dish was made by 160,000 eggs. That would explain the one-child policy. <laughs> if it was like everything else in the world and made in China. Uh, on this day in 1931, US state of Nevada legalised gambling, basically to make gun control a more profitable sport. Mm. On this day in 1831, there was the first ever US bank robbery, and the thief got away with £245,000, which equates to, in today's money, as a pack of space raiders in a Wamba. <laughs> <laughs> On this day in 1866, an immigration ship sank in Liverpool, which killed 738 people, providing inspiration for Sarah Braverman. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the BBC, uh, on this day, it was the first ever rugby game that was televised, and I would just like to take this moment to say that Scotland won 21 16. Hey. And uh, to be honest, it's the only one we've ever got <laughs> since, and that is me on this day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Amanda. So now my second segue piece. Questions to the panel. Which Scottish missionary and African explorer was born on this day in 1813 in Blantyre, South Lanarkshire? Robinson Crusoe. Who? Robinson Crusoe. No. <laughs> I think it was real, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was based on a real person. I forgot the okay. real person there. Oh. Um, I can't remember either. Hmm. Look at the DL. Anyway, it wasn't him, so sorry. It's uh, someone else. I'll say another letter. A-H. <laughs> uh, David Livingston. D-L. Yeah. That's what she said. I, was, I thought it said D-L, sorry. I thought, you were saying, I thought you were commenting on who the real person Robinson Crusoe was, so I was, I was confused. Yeah, David Livingston was born within a tenement building for cotton factory workers on the banks of the River Clyde, the second of seven children. He worked in his father's cotton mill from the age of ten, 
working 12-hour days tying broken cotton threads on the spinning machines. As an adult, Livingston hoped to be a Christian missionary in China, but the First Opium War in 1839 made it too dangerous to go there. So Livingston set out for Bequanaland, or modern Botswana, instead after meeting a missionary on leave from a posting in Africa called Robert Moffat and being captivated by his tales of what was then a largely unexplored continent, by Europeans at least. He hoped to further the cause of abolitionism in southeastern Africa. So, question to the panel, how successful was he as a missionary? Very. Very? No. <laughs> <laughs> not in the slightest? No, not, not in the slightest. Season. No, this is no. one of his shot. One got, got shot? There was a missionary got shot on the beach. Oh, no, I think uh, against, against someone else. You're thinking of Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, no. I hope one of the answers is Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> uh, DL was uh, largely a complete failure. He tried to, and failed to convert the tribes and chiefs bordering British and Boer territories at the southern tip of the continent. So he decided he should first explore Africa to further his understanding. So he identified the rivers as the best starting point for mapping and navigating inland. So what was his biggest achievement as an explorer? He never read them. No. Yeah, you see, they're, they're out of fashion now, aren't they, these explorers? <laughs> uh, he became the first European to make a transcontinental crossing of Africa. The Europeans had not explored inland before due to the tropical diseases and targeting by tribes who viewed them as invaders, seems fair enough. Uh, Livingston st started out in 1852 travelling light with only a few native servants, guns and medical supplies. He knew and respected the ways of the African tribes and tried to introduce Christianity and the abolitionist message gently, rather than haranguing proud chiefs into submission. The chiefs warmed to his approach and even offered him men to assist him in his ambitious goal of mapping the Zambezi River all the way to the sea. So, another question. On the 16th of November 1855, he came upon what was known locally as Mosi Oa Tunya, or the smoke that thunders. What was this? Sounds like a volcano. The audience are winning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for putting them out of the misery. Uh, it was the huge waterfall known as Victoria Falls, as named by Livingston himself. In total, Livingston undertook three extensive expeditions throughout the continent. His motto was to bring Christianity, commerce and civilization to Africa, a motto which became a slogan used by officials of the British Empire to endorse the expansion of their colonial territory, the so-called white man's burden, an imagined responsibility on European nations to bring civilization to the rest of the world. Colonial ambition was considered a duty for European powers. After Livingston's expeditions to the Zambezi and later in search of the source of the Nile, that reached a sort of conclusion. He fell extremely ill and disappeared for six years. So, question, who supposedly found him again? I'm hoping the audience will bail us out. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yes, it was Stanley. He was found by the American explorer and journalist Henry Morton Stanley, who had been sent to find him in 1869 by the New York Herald. They met in the town of Ujiji in western Tanzania. So how did Stanley famously introduce himself? <laughs> to Dr. <coughs> Livingston. Do you want to come up here? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, he said Dr. Livingston, I presume, allegedly. Yeah. 
Livingston died in Africa at the age of 60. He has a statue in the cathedral precinct of Glasgow. Final question on this section. In what way does Malawi's second largest city immortalise Livingston? Which statue? S statue would make sense. I'm sure it has a statue. Uh, so Malawi's second largest city is called Blantyre, after the place where Livingston was born. It has a population of 800,000, and was actually in the news last week because of the landslides there. It's all happy news on this show. Um, so over to you, Brian, for your On This Day piece, for some now uh, upbeat, upbeat material, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, uh, on this day, um, 19th of March in 1905, Albert Speer was born. <laughs> so one person's heard of him for the rest of you uh, he was known as Hitler's architect <laughs> nothing, nothing really quite takes the shine off a job title <laughs> Hitler's Hitler's sommelier Hitler's plumber Hitler's yoga instructor <laughs> try it yourself at home um, but no, Albert Speer uh, lived a complex life. On the one hand, he was a Nazi official uh, who did terrible things in the service of the Third Reich, uh, while on the other hand, he was a visionary architect who built terrible buildings in the service of the Third Reich. Um, so maybe it wasn't that complex. Um, his, his work as a Nazi architect included uh, the stadium for the Nuremberg rallies, uh, as well as hundreds of military projects for which he pioneered the innovative use of uh, slave labour. Um, he was also Germany's Minister for Armaments during the war. Um, in this role, he received Hitler's infamous Nero decree, um, which ordered the destruction of all of Germany's infrastructure in the dying days of the war when defeat looked inevitable. Um, that was also on this day, uh, 19th of March 1945, which was Albert Speer's 40th birthday. So presumably it was a bit of a downer after a lovely, <laughs> lovely bit of cake and a rousing chorus of the he's a jolly good nasty. Um, Everybody. <laughs> we'll be having a sing-along later. Um, but Speer refused to carry out this order because he could turn a blind eye to genocide but not to the blowing up of any of his shitty buildings. Uh, Speer escaped being sentenced to execution at the Nuremberg trials. Um, instead, he spent 20 years in Spandau prison. On release, he published autobiographies and featured a lot in the media, always curiously selective in his recollection of his time in the Third Reich. His arrogance required him to inflate his role while also denying all knowledge of Nazi atrocities. The natural conclusion is that he was either lying or thick as pig shit, um, or a healthy mixture of both. Author Clive James was one of those who saw through uh, Speer's self-serving uh, facade, uh, describing him as a genius without talent, um, and noting that if Speer's architectural plans for Berlin had been allowed to come to fruition, it would have had consequences far more hideous than anything achieved by the RAF. For the avoidance of doubt, though, a letter written by Speer in 1971 came to light in 2007, um, confirming that Speer had absolutely known about the Holocaust, uh, the Nazis' final solution, uh, despite the excuse which he genuinely gave at the Nuremberg trials, 
which was that he had snuck out of the meeting early. <laughs> which begs the question, what kind of meeting doesn't have that item at the top of the <laughs> Like, did this come up in AOB? <laughs> oh, well, that's everything on the agenda. Any other business? Well, I had this one idea. <laughs> It's worth noting as well, Albert Speer is not to be confused with his son, Albert Speer Jr., who claims to uh, reject um, his father's legacy, uh, once saying he'd tried his whole life to separate himself from his father. That's Albert Speer Jr., <laughs> who's an architect of architecture firm Albert Speer and <laughs> desperately trying to distance himself from Albert Speer, the Nazi architect. There are signs that hypocrisy and self-delusion may run in the family. Uh, Albert Speer Jr. also described Hitler as a nice uncle, uh, which really doesn't shower praise on his other uncles. Uh, and as an architect, he was heavily involved in building work for both the Beijing Olympi Olympics and uh, the Qatar World Cup. Um, further distancing himself from his father's <laughs> sordid legacy of building self-aggrandizing vanity projects for despotic regimes with slave labour. So that's Albert Speer, uh, a man who claimed power but denied responsibility. Uh, a man whose only practical objection to Nazi ideology arose when he was ordered to destroy his own buildings. But truly, he's the patron saint of people who only pretend to pay attention in meetings. <laughs> I think we should congratulate the panel for getting to that whole first half of the show, managing to avoid talking about the Black Death and the Armenian uh, genocide. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what is about this day? Uh, so now we come to the second half of the show. There is this half an hour to go. So now we uncover some of the history of Glasgow. So the first topic I'd like uh, to talk with the panel about is the Glasgow City Chambers. In 1888, when construction on the building that is now the Chambers was completed, Glasgow was the second city of the British Empire. To make sure that people could see how rich and powerful the city of Glasgow was, the building was decorated ornately with granite, gold leaf and alabaster, and so it famously also contains more marble than the Vatican. So, true or false, there is a miniature Statue of Liberty in the Glasgow City Chambers. True. True. Got one true. True. Double false. Two trees and a false. It's well, there's a figure on top of the pediment of the building which bears a striking resemblance to New York Statue of Liberty, but is actually intended to be a representation of truth. So I think we can say that's a false. Which is kind of ironic because it's a you know, statue of truth. This proud statue is flanked by two other figures representing riches and honour. The banqueting hall in the city chambers hosted two famous people who received the freedom of the city in 1993 and 1999, respectively. Who were they? Mandela. Yeah, Mandela in 1993. Mm -hmm. Who got it in 1999? Brian Fair. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it was actually Sir Alex Ferguson. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You should be up here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the building was used as a stand-in for what building in the film An Englishman Abroad in 1983? This could be anything, couldn't it? 
Europe. <laughs> in the east of Europe. Sorry, I wasn't aware that I was booked for my knowledge of presidential. I realise that's an extremely difficult question. If you haven't seen the film, which I haven't either, so I'll start telling you. There's the Kremlin. It's used as a stand-in for the Kremlin in that film. And also for another building in Heavenly Pursuits in 1986, and I've already mentioned this building in the introduction to this piece, about the marble. The Vatican. Yes. The Vatican. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, it's also used for the film The House of Mirth in 2000, and featured more recently in the television series Outlander. So, Glasgow statues. We mentioned the statue of David Livingstone earlier. Question, whose statue in George Square is often seen with a cone on his head? Wellington. Wellington, yeah, Duke of Wellington. And whose statue stands on an 80-foot Doric column in the centre of George Square? Walter Scott. Is it Walter Scott? <laughs> <laughs> what a new one. He was... novels such as Rob Roy, Ivanhoe, Lady of the Lake. Can you name any of the other ten statues in George Square? Who, who <laughs> don't know that expression? Hey, Robert Peel. We've got uh, 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 Robert Peel. Yes, Sir Robert Peel. Peel, yeah. that's one. Yeah. Abby Burns. Robbie Burns. Let, let the panel on the go. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in the non-official names that you know. That's probably... Okay, that looks good. No, no, no. We'll open it up then. Anybody? Nelson? No, no. Nelson's not in there. Wesker? Um. Alexander Gimbeel? Did you say Graham? Gimbeel. Yeah. So Thomas Graham. Uh -huh. uh, Thomas Graham, the chemist. Brilliant. If there was marks, you would get top marks of that. <laughs> James Watt? Uh, James Watt, yeah, you can read. James Watt? Yes, James Watt, the engineer, yes. We're getting there. A few more. Think of royalty. Um, no, uh, no, royalty from when George Square was developed. Uh, Queen Victoria. Yay. And Victoria and Albert. Prince Albert, yes. So I'll put you out of your misery then. We've also got <laughs> William Gladstone, PM, James Oswald, MP, Field Marshal Lord Clyde, mm. and Sir John Moore, who apparently was an army man. So. Uh, shamefully, Apart from the statues of Queen Victoria, there are only three other statues in Glasgow commemorating named women, as opposed to allegorical figures. Can anyone name any of those of the three women? Yeah. Fantastic. How do you know this? <laughs> You're on the next panel, the next show. Do you know either the other two? I, I, I mean, I, I can't, I, obviously, I looked this up, so it's not like I knew it. So, Dolores Ibaruri on the Clyde Walkway. Oh, and what is that? That in the, the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, I think that's where the Spanish, Spanish Civil War yeah, yeah, is. I concur. Florence Nightingale is, is, a, is a fair guess, but no, I don't know if she had any connections with Glasgow. So the, the fourth one I'm going to tell you about now is, is just me talking, I'm sorry, but it's Isabella Elder in government. Because the, the material for the show was so male-dominated, I thought we need to know about some of the famous women in Glasgow, so I wanted to find out about Isabella Elder. So she was born in 1828, and she, she was from the Gorbals. She inherited the governed shipyard John Elder & Co. from 
uh, her husband when he died. That's one of the leading shipbuilders in the world. This was then transferred to a partnership led by her brother. So she was a wealthy widow with no children, and so she became a major philanthropist in Glasgow. In 1883, she purchased North Park House in Glasgow's West End. She provided the property rent-free to house Queen Margaret College, which had been founded as the first college in Scotland to offer higher education to women. She also provided the financial support needed for the college to offer courses in medicine to women, starting in 1890. In 1885, she set up a school for domestic economy, where young women learned how to cook and perform other household tasks on a limited budget. In 1883, she purchased 37 acres near Elders Fairfield Shipyard and created Elder Park. She funded the building and stocking of Elder Free Library there in 1901, and that's still there, although it's currently being refurbished. In 1903, she provided the funds to build the Elder Cottage Hospital. She died in 1905, and her death certificate, in a nice kind of touch here, was signed by Dr. Marianne Gilchrist, who was the first woman to graduate in medicine in Glasgow. She left more than £125,000 in her will for charitable purposes, including a fund for the poor widows of Govan and Glasgow. The statue of her was unveiled in Elder Park in 1906, and the £2,000 cost for the statue was raised by public subscription, much of it from the ordinary people of Govan, who held her in high regard. So, onto the Stone of Destiny. Where in Glasgow might you find the Stone of Destiny? Acropolis. Mm. Acropolis, interesting answer, isn't it? No, well, it's, it's actually, it's actually it's store, it's indoors. It? It's indoors, so. It's a high-rise flat. It's a bombless museum. It's not in a museum, no, it's actually in a pub somewhere. The Aylington. The Aylington. Mm. Uh, that's in the Arlington on Woodlands Road, apparently, allegedly. Mm. I was hoping you were about to. Do a big reveal, and it's this one. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be, could be. So, what is the Stone of Destiny, and what was it originally used for? Is, is it the one that got stolen, isn't it? Um, from the House of Lords, I believe? Or was it from a palace? I don't know. Uh, was it? Yeah, that's one of those. Was, was it not for use for kings? Uh, was the stone that yeah, so between the years 840 and 1296, it was used as the seat upon which Scottish kings were crowned. It's a 150-kilogram block of red sandstone. And uh, where did those ceremonies take place? At school. At school, yes, in Perthshire. Oh, so not in the pub. <laughs> that came later. So what happened after 1296? Ooh, this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first took it away, and it, well, that's where it ended up in Westminster Abbey. He, he had it built into a new throne at Westminster, and from then on it was used in the coronation ceremonies of the monarchs of England and then Great Britain. And how long was it there for? Because it's not there now. Only the 60s. Uh, until 1950, when it was stolen by four Glasgow students. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> not an easy thing to steal, right? <laughs> uh, it's on Christmas Day 1950 and allegedly taken to the Arlington Bar where the students made a replica of the stone, which was the one which turned up three months later in Arbroath Abbey, which was then returned to Westminster Abbey. So no one quite knows which was which now. Uh, the stone was accidentally broken in two by the students. Students there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did you say it was like 150 kilograms? How do you accidentally break that in I think you'd probably drop it when you were trying to move it, I'd imagine. That's a bit like to ask them, isn't it? Maybe in the correlation of a 
1996, under John Major's government, it was moved from Westminster Abbey back to Edinburgh, where it now stands on display at Edinburgh Castle. So, question, will it be used again for the coronation of King Charles III in May? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Well, I, I don't think so. Okay. It will, it will, yes. Uh, plans are underway to take it back to Westminster Abbey for the coronation. <laughs> Unless it goes missing again. <laughs> hmm. So that's like a folder? Yes. <laughs> Incidentally, one of the students, Ian Hamilton, uh, died just last year, aged 97. Right, uh, next thing. Which saint's remains can be found in the Church of Blessed John Duns Scotus on Ballater Street in Gorgles? Guessing saints now. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a good guess, isn't it? Small. It's Valentine. Well, some of his remains, they're in a small wooden casket there. Specifically, which part of his remains are there? I think you'll do that. It's not the guess now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his left ankle. His left ankle. Uh, no. <laughs> Strangely. <enough. laughs> St. Valentine's remains were brought to Glasgow by Franciscan monks who were impressed by the fate of locals. His bones were originally taken to St. Francis's church in 1868 after being donated by a wealthy French family where they were contained before being moved to the former St. Luke's church on Ballater Street in 1993 and they were then rediscovered six years later after being kept in a cardboard box on top of a wardrobe. <laughs> Where might you find the rest of St. Valentine? In a car park in Leicester. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a reasonable guess, that one. Car park in Leicester, couldn't hear that on the podcast. So, allegedly, his skull is in the Basilica di Santa Maria in Rome, and the rest of his remains can be found in cities including Prague, Dublin, Madrid, Chelmno in Poland, Rockmar in France, Vienna, Malta, Lesbos, <laughs> Savona, and Birmingham. <laughs> I know people like to have their ashes scattered when they die. <laughs> Traditionally, you cremate them first. <laughs> I think he was probably quite a big boy as well. <laughs> Men have been known to propose to their girlfriends on Valentine's Day in the church beside the container and the, ch and the statue of St. Valentine's. Uh, presumably not, though, with a Glasgow kiss. <laughs> Anyone know about the history of Valentine himself? How did he achieve sainthood? feast day by Pope Galasius in 496 AD in honour of Valentine's martyrdom. He was a priest or bishop and was said to have broken Roman law to conduct marriages in secret for persecuted Christians and was jailed. When he refused to renounce his faith, he was executed on that date in the year 270 AD. Football. Football next. So the first official international football match was played in the city of Glasgow. Hamilton Crescent, the West of Scotland Cricket Club's ground in Partick. Uh, in what year do you think that took place? 1877. Oh, 
as the admission price to get into a football game, international match. Pennies. Pennies. Free. Yeah, free. 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 Oh, free. I thought you said, I said free. Because <laughs> <laughs> what would you want? You're like two shillings or something. Yeah, anyway. I, I, I was going to guess free as well. Free, and it was, it was a shilling. It was Sorry. a shilling, yeah. How many people do you think were there, how many spectators watched this first international match? Maybe the size of this audience. <laughs> Scottish players play for one club. Queen's Park. Queen's Park, yay. And obviously this gave a bit of an advantage over the English side who had players from nine different clubs. And these included what some we've heard of, Sheffield Wednesday, Crystal Palace, Notts County, then Barnes, Harrow Checkers, Oxford and Cambridge Universities, Hertfordshire Rangers, and the first Surrey Rifles. <laughs> um, the Scots wore dark blue shirts and the English wore white shirts and caps. Both teams changed their goalkeepers at half time for one of their outfield players. Interesting tactic. The game was managed by a referee and two umpires. Well, that's because it was at the cricket ground. Um, <laughs> so they just refused to do yeah. <laughs> And instead of crossbars, they used tape. Uh, the Scots played two full-backs, two half-backs and six forwards. The English played only one full-back, one half-back and eight forwards. And since three defenders were required for a ball played to be onside, the English system was virtually a ready-made offside trap. I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, who won? Was it 5-1, you said? Yeah, Scotland. Well, who Scotland. Scotland won? Probably England for me. No! It was a nil-nil <laughs> <a> <laughs> <laughs> uh, The rules in early internationals were that teams changed ends after each goal. But because there were no goals, then they just changed at half-time, so you wouldn't notice the difference in fact. Incidentally, the Scottish Football Association Challenge Cup, which is housed in the Scottish Football Museum in Glasgow, is the oldest football trophy in the world. It was made in 1874 out of solid silver. It's 19 inches high and weighs five pounds. Right, another question. Who is Sir Roger who lives in Kelvin Grove? Federer. Federer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sir Roger. Stuffed Owl. Stuffed Owl. Oh. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a stuffed elephant, well done, an Asian elephant. So he's the elephant in the West Court room at the Kelvin Grove Museum. He's been there for over a century, even staying in place during the museum's recent £35 million refurbishment. When he was alive, he was about 10 and a half feet tall and weighed over 11 and a half thousand pounds. He travelled as part of the circus company Bostock and Wombwell's Menagerie. When he was retired in May 1897, he was taken to Edward Henry Bostock's zoo in Glasgow's Cow Caverns. He was a gentle giant, loved by zoo staff, and enjoyed walks in the countryside with his keeper. 
1900, at the age of 27, Sir Roger had developed musth. Any ideas what that might be? Say again. He developed musth. Must. 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 Why you put it in an accent? It's the way I speak. <laughs> Is it a condition whereby you're stuffed and put a computer in? It kind of sounds like that. <laughs> must look or must, must be. Yeah. Any ideas? Any thoughts? A generic disease. That sounds awful. You don't have a generic disease. I mean, you wouldn't know this. It's where older male elephants in heat develop vastly increased testosterone levels. So we learned something there. He became so aggressive that he broke the arm and several ribs of the zookeeper. And soon after, staff refused to enter his enclosure or clear up after him, simply throwing his food at him from a safe distance. So how did Edward Bostock remedy this situation? <laughs> yes. I think he stuffed him and put him in a yeah. <laughs> Before that, he had to basically have him put yeah. yeah, oh, put down. Yeah. Off. <laughs> but he sold tickets to anyone who wants to watch him being put down. Oh. Which is kind of what the Victorians did, isn't it? How would you put down such a large animal? Basically, a firing squad of four soldiers. So they, they entered the enclosure one morning in October 1900 and showered Sir Roger with bullets while he was eating his breakfast. Oh, one of the bullet holes is still visible, apparently, in the elephant's forehead. So his body was taken to a taxidermist on Socky Hall Street, we all know the one, <laughs> where he was stuffed. He was actually given artificial tusks, which seems a bit weird. Uh, he was so large, I mean, where would you get artificial tusks from? But anyway. Is that presumably because they wanted the ivory? Oh, I haven't thought of that. Yeah, possibly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> he was so large that the taxidermist had to remove the storefront to be able to get the animal out. But that made me think, well, how did they get the animal in? <laughs> 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 uh, he was then taken to the Kelvin Grove Museum, where he has remained for over 120 years. So that's, that's Sir Roger. Next thing, because we've still got time. Which signature curry dish was allegedly invented in Glasgow? Chicken tikka masala. Yay, chicken tikka masala. Invented by chef Ali Ahmed Aslan in the Shish Mahal restaurant back in the 1970s. A customer had complained that his chicken was too dry, so Aslan allegedly improvised by adding a spare tin of condensed tomato soup and some spices. In a 2001 survey of the UK's favourite dishes, where did chicken tikka masala rank? Top. 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 Fourth. Top. Top. First. Yes, it was first. It was even above fish and chips. In a speech on the concept of Britishness at the time, which I remember, the UK's then Foreign Secretary Robin Cook called the curry a true British national dish, not only because it is the most popular, but because it is a perfect illustration of the way Britain absorbs and adapts external influences. <laughs> it's the way forward. You see, Master Chef as well here. So, question: What did Labour MP Mohammed Sarwar propose in Parliament in 2009 related to this? We make it Britain's national dish. Or did he just propose that they all go for a carrot? <laughs> 
And he put forward an early day motion in the House of Commons requ requesting that Parliament legally re recognise Glasgow as the home of Chicken Tikka Masala. This would have protected geographical status by the European Union. <laughs> would that be equivalent to like, um, champagne. like yeah, champagne region of France and everything? So you can't call it chicken tikka masala unless it's come from Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. Is there not quite a lot of dispute over um, loads of loads yeah. of parts of the UK claim it, and then everyone in there also claim to have invented it? So I don't know how. I I, I, I look at this up. I think this 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 fair reason to suggest that it was invented by this chap. Mm -hmm. I think the the tin of soup is a bit of an urban myth, should we say? Oh, right. <clears throat> but um, I, I kept that in. I kept that in. Uh, anyway, Sala's motion didn't make it to debate, so unfortunately it's not got that status. Um, sadly, Mr. Aslan died just last December, age 77. I've still got time for more questions, so we can have a go at this. What is the population of Glasgow today? 400,000. 400,000? It always depends on where you draw the. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. The, the biggest size, it's like almost half of Scotland. Um, 100,000? 100,000. So actually 591,000 as of last year, so that's about, it's more than 10% of the population. So greater or is that just Glasgow Centre? I'm not sure to be honest. <coughs> I think I'm assuming that's greater Glasgow given the size of that. Yeah. So compare 591,000 with Edinburgh, which has got 465,000. Uh, Glasgow is Scotland's most populated city and the UK's seventh most populated. So that was, uh, that was 2021. But what was the population at its peak, which is in about 1938? So it's 591,000 now. It was over a million. It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, about 1.1 million back then. Uh, largely due to house building, a lot of and tenant blocks being knocked down, and a lot of population moved out of the centre of Glasgow over time. Uh, in total, have a nice guess at this, how many ships were built across all the shipyards on the River Clyde? That's a reasonable guess, 20,000, yeah. 25,000. 25,000, getting closer. Seven. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be ridiculously high, ridiculously low. Over 30,000. Over 30,000, yeah. Uh, apparently, during the Industrial Revolution, the riverbed was so shallow in places it could be walked across. The river was dredged over the course of 53 years to remove over 108,000 tonnes of sediment. Where do you find the longest bar in Europe? Horseshoe. Yay! Yeah, Victoria near a horseshoe bar, which is in Jewelry Street. Yeah. Any idea how long it is? Um, 106 feet. Oh, okay. that's, that's remarkably close to what I've got, yeah. 104 feet and 3 inches, so. There's been a bar on the site since 1846. Which Glasgow band was formed there? There may be more than one, but the famous one. Travis. Travis, yeah, yeah. So drummer Neil Primrose was working behind the bar when he told his friend Fran Healy about a band called Glass Onion who played there. Healy saw and subsequently joined them. They used the pub as a rehearsal space early in their career, and a number of their gold discs are displayed in the pub. Where does the band's name come from? Does anyone know this? This really is a pub trivia question. No, so apparently it comes from a, a character in the film Paris, Texas, released in 1984. So it's a character called Travis Henderson. 
who was played by Harry Dean Stanton. So, any idea where the inspiration for that album title, The Man Who, comes from? Short for is it is it not um, when like before Doctor Who got his PhD? <laughs> <laughs> from the title of a book by neurologist Oliver Sacks, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. The 85 book described the case histories of some of Sacks' patients. The title refers to a patient of his who had something called visual agnosia, a neurological condition that left him unable to recognise faces and objects. So I suggest at this point it's time to kind of start to wrap things up. So I'd like to thank our panellists Ian Pringle, Amanda Hersey and Brian Ghosh. Thank you. I'd also like to thank the Griffin Bar and uh, our, our tech person here and the The next show is going to be recorded in the Bryson Fringe at the Toy and Modern Museum on the 27th of May. Uh, that's for people in the podcast as well, for people hearing this. I've got the final on this day just to close the show, which is Tommy Cooper's birthday, 19th of March 1921, he was born. He was a prop comic and magician. And here are some one-liners attributed to the great man with which to end the show. I can't really do the voice, I'm afraid. I said, it's serious, Doctor. I've broken my arm in 20 places. He said, well, stop going to those places. (laughs) 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 Number two, I slept like a log last night. I woke up in the fireplace. (laughs) Number three, a friend of mine said, you want to go to Margate? It's good for rheumatism. I went... And I got it. <laughs> Number four. I backed a horse today, 20 to 1. It came in at 20 past 4. <laughs> Number five. I met my wife at a dance. I thought she was home with the kids. <laughs> and uh, the last one. My wife just phoned me. She said, I've got water in the carburetor. I said, where's the car? She said, it's in the river. <laughs> and just like that, it's goodbye. <laughs>